It's amazing. I got that same response when I came up the first time. Uh, oh, no. Emily, again, that was beautiful. Thank you. God bless you. Give her another hand. That was great. So glad to be with you this morning. You know, the past five months have been a little crazy. Uh, somewhere around mid-March to right now, five months, we've learned a lot of new things. Things have changed. Uh, we've uh, had this virus going through our land and around the world. We've had a lot of uh, political unrest. And uh, with it being an, uh, uh, an election year, that's exacerbated some of our problems. And it seems like people are at each other's throats. And a lot has changed. You've gotten used to or have tried to getting used to wearing a mask from time to time. And uh, a lot has changed in our world in five months. But I want to say this. Some things don't change, and some things never will. The Word of God has never changed. Uh, the Word of God endures forever, and it will never, ever, ever change. And whatever the world is up to, uh, whatever is happening politically, socially, economically, culturally, or personally in this world, no matter what it is that's going on, there is one thing that always goes on, and nothing that this world does ever stops for one second what God is doing. God is always active in this world. Even when you don't see His hand or you think you don't see Him at work, He is always, at all times, in all places, seeking to save the lost. That never changes. That's the heart and the passion of God and of Christ. That is why He came. That is His purpose. In fact, in Luke 19.10, Jesus basically gives us His own personal purpose statement when He says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said this uh, to us and, and pretty much in a nutshell tells us why He came. And listen, from the beginning to the end, God has been, is, and always will be seeking to save that which was lost. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible paints a picture of God as a God who relentlessly pursues a relationship with you and with me and with the redemption of all mankind. Listen, that is going on here through this church, Main Street Baptist Church, and no virus stops that kind of stuff. Now, you might think, well, we can't do what we did. We can't gather as we did. There are a lot of things that are changed. But let me tell you some things that have not changed. Christ is still, still seeking to save the lost. I saw it this past week on Wednesday in, in Wahlberg when I went uh, with Donnie Boyd uh, to have a hamburger and to join uh, Daryl Smith as he's faithfully proclaiming God's Word to a group of guys at a body shop. Now, they gathered on Wednesday, as they do regularly, to hear the Word of God. And you know what's going on? God is seeking to save the lost, and He's using Daryl Smith to do it. Last Thursday, I watched as Donnie Boyd led a Bible study to a group of people at Stonehaven Community. And the Word of God is going out so that the lost may hear and be saved. Uh, Mark Rich gave me some special sauce 
This is called gospelize, and it has to do with the new curriculum that the teenagers are going to be going through, the youth this, this um, fall, and it's a hot pepper sauce that says gospelize on the front. I'm, I'm, I asked Mark, I said, get me a, a couple dozen of those or more. I'm going to use them to witness to people. I tried to the other day. I went down to the, to the hot sauce shop down here on the square, and I forgot to take a mask. <laughs> so I couldn't go in and witness uh, so I'm going this week, y'all pray. I don't know who's going to be there. Who's going to, I'm going to go buy a bottle of sauce. And then when I get done, I'm going to say, I didn't notice this sauce on your shelf. It says gospelize. And I'm going to give it to them as a gift. I'm going to explain to them what it's all about. And what it's all about is what we're seeing here on the screen. Luke 19, 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's break this verse down just for a moment. Uh, before we pray, that key word, uh, three key words in this, first of all, seek. The word for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The word is soteo, and it literally means to seek until you find. It's not just, well, I looked for it and I didn't find it. No, it's to seek and to continue seeking until you find what you're looking for. Those of you who are parents... Have you ever lost a child for even just a moment? If you haven't, God bless you. I don't know how you've done it. We raised four, and I promise you there are times when you look around and say, where'd he go? Where's she at? We had one in particular that had happened with a lot. Uh, and what happens when, when you are missing that child? You immediately felt a panicked sense of urgency to find that child. And how long did you search for that child? How long did you search? Until you found her or him. You searched until you found. You didn't give up. You didn't stop looking. You turned every corner. You looked at every nook and every cranny until you found that child. Listen, it doesn't matter. That's what the, that's what the word soteo means. And now you get the idea. When he says the Son of Man has come to seek, it's an urgent seeking. It's a focused seeking. It's purposeful seeking. And you don't stop until you find what you're looking for. Uh, I have a tendency to lose things. Uh, lose my keys. Lose my wallet. Uh, you say, well, you should have a special place to put it. I do. I still lose it. Okay? Uh, and and when, you, when I lose my wallet or lose my keys or whatever it is, at that moment in time, nothing else matters. I I'll eat in a minute. You know, I'll do this in a minute. I've, you you got to do this. No, right now I have to find my keys. Why? Because I'm going to look for them until I find them. When you're missing something you've lost, your purse, your wallet, your keys, whatever, everything else is suspended until you find what you're looking for. The next key word I want to look at is that word lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That word, apolumai, means to destroy fully, completely, to be ruined, to be marred, to perish. It's the same word we have in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That whosoever believeth in Him should not be lost forever. The third key word here is that word save. And you hear that word a lot around church 
or if you don't, you should. It's a very common word. You might hear the phrase, when were you saved? Are you saved? Have you been saved? I was saved on the 13th of February, 1968. What are we talking about when we use that word save? It means to rescue from danger or destruction, to keep safe and sound. What does it mean when a Christian says, I'm saved? Or asks you, are you saved? Christians talk a lot about that word. What exactly does it mean? It appears a lot in the New Testament. But the first time it shows up is in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel says to Joseph, the husband of Mary, that she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save. First time it's used in the New Testament. He shall save his people from their sins. To be saved doesn't mean to be saved from hell. That's a byproduct. It means to be saved from your sins. It means to be rescued from sin's damnation. To be released from sin's dominance. To be rid eventually and ultimately and eternally from sin's presence. It means forgiveness. That Christ has paid your debt. It means friendship. That Christ has reconciled you to God. It means freedom that Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And it means forever that Christ has prepared an eternal place for you with the Father. This is God's plan and this is God's purpose for everyone in this room and for everyone in this world to be Saved. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world, listen, to save sinners. That's why He came. He came to save sinners. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, Paul said, who will have all men and women to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Listen, God is not willing that any should perish or be lost, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to be or remain lost. The Bible presents that truth that humanity is lost. That the world is in darkness. And that you and I, born into this world, are born in sin and we're born lost. And we must be rescued. We must be saved. God's eternal plan and Jesus' earthly purpose for every single person in this world is to seek and to save us from our sins. Now, in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we have a declaration of this truth found in the form of three parables. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, in Luke 15, we have the parable of a lost sheep in verses 4 through 7, of a lost coin in verses 8, 9, and 10, and of a lost son in verses 11 through 32. This morning, we're going to look at the first of those three parables, the lost sheep, in the first seven verses. So stand with me, please, if you would, as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eats with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, 
having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it upon his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance." Remain standing with me as we pray together. Father, speak to us in this moment through your word. Speak to us and help us to focus solely on what you have for each one of us today. I pray, God, that you would put the words in my heart and in my mouth to say what you would have said. And, Lord, may we leave here today having heard from you. Hide me in the cross, and may my words be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Notice with me in verse 1 of Luke 15, he says, Then drew near unto him, that is unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Now, let me give you a little background information so we can understand this uh, parable better. Um, A publican... Let me step back and say this. When Jesus spoke, he often spoke in parables. And he wasn't just walking along one day and saying, Hey, hey, guys, i got a cool story I want to tell you. It wasn't just he was making up stories for the fun of it. There was always a purpose for the parable. There was a reason behind why he said what he said. And in this particular case, these publicans and these sinners were coming together in multitudes to hear Jesus speak. And when they did, the the religious people, the spiritual leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they took issue with that and said, this 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 young rabbi is is welcoming these publicans and these sinners, and he's eating with them. What is wrong with him? That's not the way to go if you want to build a ministry as a rabbi. And they were put out with Jesus. So let's take a look at these publicans. They were public contractors who often supplied the Romans uh, uh, military with uh, their supplies. They managed the collection of port duties and oversaw public building projects. They also served as tax collectors for the empire. They were high-ranking officials underneath the senators but above the common folk. And they took care of most of the public duties such as constructing public buildings, supplying equipment for the army, operating mines, and most importantly, collecting taxes. Now, how did one become a publican? How did they get that position of being this tax collector, this uh, public overseer? The office literally went to the highest bidder. The Roman Empire was expansive. It was huge. And because of that, it was very expensive, and they needed money, so they imposed taxes. And the Roman territory would be divided up into several provinces, and these provinces had officials, publicans, uh, the publicani uh, is the Latin term for them, the plural term, 
And this office would be put up for bid and sold to the highest bidder. And oftentimes, two or three people would go in together to purchase the authority of the publicani. And the winner, the highest bidder, would then pay their money to Rome in exchange for the authority to collect taxes from that province. All right, so Eric, Dorothy, and I are going to be publicans. You picked the wrong place. It was Charles Lance in the first service. And we're going to be publicans over Georgetown. All right, and so it's going to cost us a million dollars to be the publicans, the publicani of Georgetown. And Eric's going to put in $999,999. And I've got a dollar here. I'm going to be his partner. Now, we're going to split it 50-50 what we get. But when you purchase that authority to collect taxes, we'd be over all the buildings, all the building codes, everything that goes on in Georgetown, you'd have to pay us to get it done. And we would charge you, we'd put up tolls on University Avenue, on Austin Avenue, and you'd have to pay money to drive our roads. And we're going to collect money from you because we've gotten that authority from Rome because we paid for it. Now, these publicans had a very bad reputation of being greedy and avarice, and they were uh, not well received in the community. And oftentimes, and, and even more than, than their greed and avarice, they were Jewish people who were viewed as being disloyal to the Jewish nation who was under the authority of Rome. They sold out to Rome. And so, uh, Eric and I are not real popular. But we're pretty rich. We're making good money, but nobody likes us. You see, we can, we're paying the, 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 the empire, we're paying the empire a million dollars, but we're collecting about four and a half million a year in taxes. We're doing okay, Eric. These people were not well received. And generally speaking, they weren't good people. And Jesus is going to their houses and eating meals with them. And welcoming them. And receiving them. And the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, what is this rabbi thinking? Why is he receiving these publicans and these sinners? Now, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, in that sense, we say we're all sinners. But when the Bible uses the word here like this, it's not talking about mankind in general. But people who were associated and identifiable by their sins, the, the gluttons, the wine-bibbers, the harlots are mentioned in other places as coming to Jesus. They were voracious people, given to wine, habitual drinkers of alcohol. Uh, the, the word for harlots, porne, a woman who sold her body for sexual uses. These people were coming to Jesus, and He was welcoming them. Our text tells us that these people drew near to Jesus for to hear Him. Why? Mark tells us in his Gospel that the common people heard Jesus gladly. These harlots, these drunkards, these wine-bibbers, these publicans, these people that the spiritual leaders despised and, and considered unclean and would have nothing to do with, they came to Jesus by the flocks. 
The Bible uses the word regularly. Multitudes of these people followed Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they believed on Him, but they followed Him. They saw something in Him. They heard something that they wanted to get close to. People flocked to see Him. Jesus was a rock, had rock star status. I mean, wherever He would go, they would flock to hear Him. Why? Well, quite simply because He loved them. I know that's real deep, right? He loved them. Nobody else did. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly didn't. Most of the people that they lived around didn't. But Jesus did. He, he loved them. He loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus was very approachable. He was a people magnet. He want, the people wanted to be near him. He welcomed them. He healed their sick. He fed them. He loved them. He listened to them. He spent time with them. He spoke truth to them. The scribes and the Pharisees were not approachable in any such way. Specifically, if you were deemed to be unclean. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, verse 2, saying, This man receiveth sinners. And eats with them. Listen, the religious crowd did not appreciate the fact that Jesus loved sinners. They murmured about Jesus because he welcomed sinners and ate with them. You know what? Having a meal with someone uh, is an indication of acceptance. You generally don't invite your enemies out to eat. You generally don't invite people you don't like to have a meal with you. Jesus sat down and ate with them and went to their homes and ate with them. Having a meal says, I like you. I love you. Jesus did what the religious leaders could not or would not do. He looked beyond their sin to their situation and he saw their need like the old song we used to sing. He looked beyond my faults and saw my need. Matthew chapter 9 says about Jesus, when he saw these multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Let me put it in context for us. When you see a group of people protesting in the streets, is your heart moved with compassion? I dare say most often, no. Jesus saw the despised people of his day and said, I have compassion on the multitudes. He would go and invite them into his home or invite himself to their home. He did that with Zacchaeus. And he would eat with them. He said, I have compassion on them because they are faint and are scattered abroad as sheep. Having no shepherd. Now, with this backdrop, Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep. With the backdrop of understanding who we're dealing with, the despised publican, the despised harlot, the despised drunkard, the despised person that is lost. Jesus, in verse 3, says, He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. 
And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Let me just bullet point what's happening here. Number one, you have a hundred sheep. You lose one of the hundred sheep. You leave the ninety-nine sheep to go after the one that is lost. You search for the one lost sheep until you find it. You lay that one found sheep on your shoulders and you carry it home. You call together your friends and neighbors and rejoice with them over the one sheep that was lost but is now found. Now, from a business standpoint, you might just take the loss and say, Hey, I still got 99. What's one sheep? There's a tendency and a dangerous tendency in Christianity today. I read recently in an article in a very popular Christian magazine about how that pastors of evangelical churches too often focus on the individual and not on the collective and not on the group. Listen, I believe in community. I believe in togetherness. I believe that when you get saved, you become part of a family, part of a body. But listen, never, ever, ever diminish the value of one. Jesus did not. I was that one. You were that one. You wouldn't be one of the 99 if at some point in your life, Jesus didn't seek to save you. And so that 99, they're safe in the fold, but there's one out there and the shepherd says, I've got to go. There's one lost sheep out there. I've got to go get that one lost sheep. And when he gets back, he's rejoicing. And in these parables, uh, the, the, the shepherd is God. The woman who finds the coin is God. And the father whose prodigal son returns home is a picture of God. So you know who's rejoicing here? God is rejoicing. There's, there's joy in heaven, more joy over one sinner who repents than a 99 that have no need of repentance. Have you ever pictured God like that? I dare say most people don't picture God as having a party. Smiling, laughing, singing, dancing. That's the picture of God here. He's rejoicing. He's throwing a party. He's shouting. He's dancing. He's inviting the neighbors over and say, Hey, we're going to have a party because my son came home. Because my sheep was found. He's excited. Why? Because a lost sheep was found. A lost coin was discovered. A lost son came home. There is joy, unlike other joys, that happens when a sinner repents. Now, we understand that just a little bit as parents. You, you get it a little bit. When one of your children is sick for a protect, protracted amount of time, and you have other children, and, and they're fine. They're well. They're in good health. But there's one who's sick. And you're more concerned right now for that one who's sick than you are the three or four that are not. It isn't that you don't love the healthy children. You do. But right now your focus is on the one child who's sick. And when that fever breaks and that child is healthy again, you rejoice. You are happy. You're more happy because of the health of that one that was sick than you are the fact that the other three never got sick. That's what he's talking about here. 
We cannot be satisfied because we have 99 in the fold as long as there is one who's not saved. You're happy that the other children are healthy, but you rejoice when the sick one gets well. And that's what he's talking about here. Look what happened when Levi or Matthew, who wrote the first book in the New Testament... Uh, God saved. It says, after these things, Jesus went forth. This is in Luke 5, 27. I'm sorry, I didn't put it on the screen, but uh, follow me. Uh, he, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus said, listen, uh, if you're saved, the, the worst that can happen to you is, is, is you'll die and go to heaven. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that we don't focus on, on believers. We do, because when sheep come in, they become part of the body, they become part of the flock, and then there's discipleship, and there's growth, and there's small groups, and there's Sunday school, and, and there's discipleship for becoming like Christ and helping you to follow Him better. But the worst thing that could happen to me is that I'm going to die someday, and I'm going to go to be with my Savior. The worst thing that could happen to some of my neighbors is that they'll die without Christ and go to hell. And God says, I can't let that happen. I must be seeking, always seeking until I find. Now, how do we seek people like Jesus did? Well, quite simply, number one, love people. Love them. And if you can't love them, ask God to help you love them. Some people are hard to love. Ask for a greater capacity to love. Love people. Pray for people. Be friendly. Be faithful. Be ready. Be real. Be yourself. You don't have to be Billy Graham. Be you. You would make an awful Billy Graham. And he would make an awful you. Be yourself. Do what Jesus did. Be approachable. Make it where people want to come to you. He says he welcomed them. He healed them. He fed them. Now, you probably can't turn water into wine. Now, Mike Lee, you can do a lot of things. I've watched you. But I don't think you can turn water into wine. And Eric, you're a pretty handy guy, but I don't think you could take five loaves and two fishes and feed thousands. But you know what we can do? We can take people out for a burger. We can grill out and invite people over to the house. You know what? Food is a great mediator for meeting people. You can make a bowl of hot soup in the fall, in the winter when it's cold, and invite people and say, hey, we got, we're having soup night. Why don't you come join us? If you feed them, they will come. You say, what, am I, what are you doing? You're seeking the lost. Listen to them. Love them. Spend time with them. Speak truth to them. Jesus is Still seeking to save that which is lost. And he does it through us. He does it through the church. He, he does it through Melissa Denton and the ladies' Bible study. 
He does it through Les Dahl in the Sunday school class. He does it through Alan Hart in music ministry. He does it through you and me on a daily basis by being aware of the need of lost sheep. I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I'm going to challenge everyone in this room. Everyone. You say, me? Yeah, you. Everyone in this room and everyone watching online right now. I want you to prayerfully identify one person in your life who is lost. One person in your life who does not know Christ. It could be your cousin. It could be your coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be a stranger that you just met yesterday. But right now, I'm gonna, we're going to take about 20 seconds here. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, and we're going to just pray. And I want you to pray this. God, please put in my heart right now one person that I can build a relationship with to begin to share the gospel with. Maybe you already knew before today who that person was. You can look up here now. Did God put someone on your heart or has someone already been placed on your heart? You say, I know who that one person is that God wants me to seek. Would you just raise your hands? I know who that one person is. All right, hands there, hands there. All right, and maybe you don't yet know. We say, raise your hands. I'm willing to know. I'll pray and ask God to show me who he wants me to seek. God bless you. I want you over the next um, 90 days, between now and Thanksgiving, to begin to pray and to prepare to go to that person and to tell them about Christ or to invite them to a church service or small group or a Bible study or some event. You could simply start the conversation with, how can I pray for you? You don't have to go and lay out a five-point sermon about how to be saved. You could do that if you want to. But just simply start with, how can I pray for you? Invite them over for a hamburger. Invite them out for a hamburger. Take them out to coffee. i got a guy I'm going with this Wednesday for coffee. One of the ladies in our church, Kendra Dean, said, hey, would you reach out to this guy? So we're having coffee Wednesday. I don't know anything about him. But I know this, he's a soul for whom Christ died. Commit to inviting one. I want to ask you right now, who's your one? We can get the screen. I want to tell you about an event that's coming up at Great Hills Baptist Church on September 13th and 14th. 6 p.m. on Sunday night, there's a Who's Your One rally. I want you to write that down in your calendar. 6 o'clock Sunday night, September 13th. I have already made plans to go. I hope you'll join us. And on Monday morning from, I think, 8 till noon, there is a 
who is your one workshop. And it's designed specifically to help us uh, to learn practical ways to start gospel conversations. You know, sometimes the hardest thing to do is just get the conversation started. You ever notice that? If you just get it started, it'll go. It'll flow. You'll have an opportunity. But sometimes just getting it started. Um, I want this to be, and it will be, a great time in the life of our church as together we reignite a passion for seeking the lost. I've already asked you to go to God in prayer and to to lay someone on your heart. Uh, I want you to do something right now. I want you to get out your phone. You got your phone with you? I want you to go to your notes or wherever you go to, whatever you do, and I want you to write that person's name down where you'll see that name every time you go to open your phone or every time you go to your calendar or wherever you go most often. Just put that name right there as a prayer reminder because you're just like I am. You'll forget. Days will go by and you'll go, oh, yeah, I was supposed to pray for and prepare to go and seek this person so that they could come to Christ. So right now, get your phone out. Hold it up so I can see it. All right. There we go. Put that name in there. A while back, I put a name in there. That name was my barber. And we began to pray for her. And God opened an opportunity, a door for me to witness to her. And it was like she had just been waiting for someone to tell her about Christ. It's amazing what happens when we just begin to pray and are willing to say, Lord, send me, I'll go. You, listen, sometimes it's a little unnerving or even fearful for some. But if you will pray, God will give you the boldness to say what you need to say. And, and it may not be that you bring the person to Christ. It may be you bring them to someone else who brings them to Christ. But pray. Write down their name and pray for them every day. Before we close, maybe you are the one whom God is seeking. I mean, you're here gathered today or you're out there listening through uh, the Internet, but you've never come to Christ. You've never trusted Him as your Savior. Maybe today you're the one that needs to come to Christ. He has sought you, and right now He has found you and he's calling you to himself listen he loves you he doesn't care what you've done or how far you've run from him you cannot outrun the love of god you cannot out sin the grace of god christ died for all our sins paid for every last one of your sins and right now if you would receive him He has already welcomed you. Would you do that now? Would you in your heart right now do what I did many years ago when I was confronted with my need of a Savior? I prayed a a very simple prayer, somewhat like this. Dear God, I'm a sinner, and I know I need forgiveness. And I believe that your son Jesus died for me and rose from the dead to save me. And I right now receive Jesus as the Savior of my life and the Savior for my sins. 
Would you do that right now? If you'll call upon Him, He's already welcomed you. He went to the cross and showed His love for you. And He'll receive you right now if you come to Him. Would you do that? Father, we ask Your blessings on the Word that was spoken here today. We pray, God, that You would speak to our hearts. And I pray especially for that one right now who is in need of coming to You, that right now they would turn and by faith put their trust in Jesus. And I pray for all of us that are part of the the ninety and nine, as it were, that You would make us like You, shepherds sent to seek the lost sheep. I pray for everyone that's name was written down here today. And I pray for every person who wrote down a name that they would pray for and plan and prepare to go to that person to seek that which is lost until they find it. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.